With your Amex card, entertainment benefits like special ticket access and pre-sales to select can't miss events while supplies last, make every tap music to your ears. This is John Middlecoff from 3 and Out with John Middlecoff. Superchargers, headlights, and more. With over 122 million parts, eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Stay on your A-game with all the parts you need at the prices you want. It's easy to bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Nerds is where it's at. Welcome everybody back into Nerd Sesh. As always, I'm Carson Brabber, and alongside me is Logan Camden. And today we are recording a remote episode for you all. As you can tell if you're watching on video over Zoom, given that I am back home in Northern California. But nevertheless, Logan, we had to talk about basketball because we are now several days deep in the NBA season. It has been incredibly exciting thus far. And we haven't checked in with you guys since Wednesday, which was when we had only seen two games. So what we're going to do today is share a handful of takeaways that we have had from the few days of the season thus far. Logan, I'll just throw it over to you first. What is your first takeaway here? I want to get the boring one uh, out of the way first because this is kind of repetitive from our first night of takeaways. And, uh, you know, I'm going to talk about the Lakers again. I'm going to repeat it. I have zero confidence in my NBA Finals pick out West. Now that we've seen two games of the Lakers, offense is just not ever going to come easy, and I'm not convinced that anything's going to change. Like, I don't know why I would hold out hope. Um, I mean, against the Suns, you know, they kept the game close in the first half, but they just could not produce half-court buckets to save their lives, Carson. And, you know, I think the the one positive that maybe you can take away from this game is that Russ looked a little more aggressive in this one. You know, he was – trying to attack the paint a little more and that worked in the first half he just he was out there trying to get his own buckets but again fundamentally there's just the spacing issues here are going to kill them they were outscored 56 to 26 in the paint and that's just that's against the Suns that should not happen like when you are you're the Lakers that is your identity again I mean we touched on this last time you need to be stout defensively and you need to utterly run teams over in the paint you have got to outscore every team you play down there because again your three biggest players are best in getting downhill and getting into the paint and just nothing else was going right uh we talked about this offense being too reliant on 80 jumpers that persisted here I think the biggest issue in this offense though Carson I think we saw this against Phoenix is that even LeBron can't get his own easy buckets again because of the spacing issues like you'll see LeBron back down a guy on the low block and it's like two or three guys can slide over for a couple of reasons. One, because there's either 
AD and another big man on the floor, which, again, they're not going to try to go out on the perimeter. They're not afraid of them taking an open jump shot. That's the shot that they want the Lakers to produce and take. Or if a big man and AD aren't on the floor, if it's just AD running the five spot, well, if Russ is out there as well, they're not afraid to rush shooting. They'll slide off of him as well and give him a wide-open shot. Like, guys, defenses aren't scared of the guys surrounding LeBron in shooting, so they're not afraid to slide over and give help. So, Buckets are coming hard for LeBron now. Like the paint is just cluttered, and defenses are not afraid of giving guys open looks here on this team. Um, and you want to talk about general chemistry stuff? What the hell was that between Dwight and AD? We're gonna have a <laughs> we're gonna have guys throwing hands here before the end. Basically, again, I touched on this in our last episode. They're not even in the same ballpark as the fluid offenses out West, and that is a major problem. When it comes playoff time, this team is not going to be able to generate offense at a high enough level to beat a team in a seven-game series. There is just a different kind of fluidity between the Lakers' offense and the top-notch teams out West, and I thought you saw this in the second half of this Suns game. The Suns just pulled away. I mean, the in-transition, Book running the floor, Chris Paul running the floor, Macau Bridges getting out. And then in the half court, offense just comes easy to Phoenix in a way that it isn't for L.A. The ball movement, uh, D-Book and Chris Paul out of the mid-range in the pick and roll. Like, offense just does not come as easy to the Lakers that is going to come to the Warriors, to the Suns, to the Jazz, to the Nuggets, any of these other top-notch teams out west. And again, Maybe they figure out something here in the regular season, Carson, to where they're respectable, you know, 49, 50 wins, maybe is still attainable. Like, at some point, they've got to figure out this thing, right? I, but when it comes to playoff time, I just, I'm not going to try, I'm not going to trust this team enough. I, I don't care what I see. Like, I'm going to, again, I'm going to have to see some major, major changes for me to believe in this team as a half-court offense and as a playoff offense. It has been an absolutely brutal two games here for L.A., yeah, I have to agree, obviously, and this was the worst 10-point loss you will ever see because this was a 30-point game, and it was a blowout, and it was an inept performance by the Lakers. And I think that you touched on a key thing there that we addressed after their season opener. They have put together this team of guys who need to get downhill to be effective, but in doing so, they have created such a congested roster that nobody can get downhill. Nobody is ever going to see a clean paint. And it's like two years ago when they won the title, they scored the second highest percentage of their points in the paint that regular season. And their strategy was, we are going to overpower you. We don't care if it's LeBron coming downhill with a lob threat, rolling to the bucket with 80 as another option in there. We are just going to be bigger and stronger and more overpowering than you. And that worked. And then even last year, as their offense struggled a bit more, they were still sixth as far as percentage of points in the paint. Again, because this has never been a good shooting team. They were not a good shooting team when they won at all, which was kind of remarkable, but they survived because they were so overwhelming in that paint. And then the next year, we saw their shooting killed them. So that's never been their identity. And now they've put themselves in a position where through two games, they have the lowest percentage of points scored in the paint in the entire NBA, deep into that game against the Suns, they had eight points in the paint. I'm talking like end of the third quarter or last couple minutes of the third quarter. And then garbage time, sure, they got a few more chances in there. But like that is incomprehensible. Incomprehensible. We knew that this was probably the worst star fit possible in Russell Westbrook joining this team. But dude, 
to see it play out to this extent, it is mind-blowing. And Carson, I just want to say, I want to say like six to all eight of those points were Russell Westbrook early in the first quarter. Like, Mm -hmm. a lot of those were just him attacking the paint early. Damn. Yeah. (laughs) It's just, it it proves our point. It does. And I will say that you talk about them rallying in this regular season and getting up to that 50-win range. I still do expect that. And part of this is obviously an egregiously bad basketball fit that we are seeing play out right in front of us. What I will say, though, is every major personnel adjustment in LeBron's career has come with initial struggles. 2010-11, the Heat started 9-8, and and that was a team that obviously had the most talent in the league by far. 2014-15, when he came back to Cleveland, they started 19-20, and and those teams finished respectively 58-24 and and 53-29, and and neither of them won the title, but they did both get to the finals. So... I think that there is a level of misfit here that we did not see in either of those situations. But what I can guarantee you is that it will get better. Let me ask you this. If it doesn't get better, if we get like closer and closer to this midway point, do we see kind of like a a 2018 Cavs? Do you you anticipate a sort of LeGM moment where we just see maybe Russ get dealt and a lot of these guys get moved on for for? you know, pieces that will fit alongside him. Like, I still feel like LeBron has that pull here in L.A. to get those, you know, to make big trades like that happen midseason. Who's taking Russell Westbrook in the entire NBA? It's a great question. I don't know. I mean, you see his value that the all the Wizards could get was Kyle Kuzma, mm-hmm. KCP, and Trez. That's a good point. I don't know who would want him. I don't know who you can trade him for except for, you know, maybe to the, oh, the Rockets aren't going to want him back. They got off of him. I don't know, dude. You got to make the salaries work, and that's the hardest part of it. And see, that's another that's another issue with this, Carson. You have had flexibility in these contracts with the stars, or just pieces alongside LeBron, to where you can do that. Even if you had gone out and gotten Buddy Heald, which again we thought was a better stylistical fit. I don't know. Maybe if LeBron had beef with Buddy, you can move off of him because he's a valuable asset around the league. Russell is neither of those things. He's a bad contract and a bad fit, and a losing basketball player. So. I guess you're right. So maybe not Russ specifically, but that doesn't fix any of the issues. I mean, I don't know, man. I guess they're not going to change up the role players either. I guess this is, I guess this is it, man. This is the team that they're trotting out for the rest of the season, and they're kind of landlocked and handcuffed to it. Man, I'm I'm going to hold out hope, dude. But I, I have not seen any positive signs except for Russ being a little more aggressive in this game. Like, <laughs> man, dude, what if? Let me ask you this. Like, if, if this is if this still persists, like, do they just move Russ to the bench? Like, what, what is another solution, dude? Well, here's the thing. I feel like they've put themselves in a position where they have to ride this out because that Russ contract gets better and better even if he gets worse and worse because there's less time on it. Like, if you trade him at the deadline, somebody's only stuck with that for a year and a half. The thing is, I feel like we are at the point where you have to attach assets to that. They do not have assets to attach. They don't have the rights to their next three first-round picks. So they are going to have to find a way to make this work. I don't think Russell Westbrook is ever going to be willing to come off the bench. But clearly, you have to stagger their minutes as aggressively as possible. And clearly, you have to stop doing the little cute stuff where you're starting DeAndre Jordan at center in this game. And we've seen AD play, again, a decent amount of minutes alongside centers. Bro, it is over. 
it's two games in. You don't have to hit the full-on panic button necessarily, but you have to understand your flaws, and you have to understand why you're struggling so much. And a major component of it is that you are not maximizing the shooting you have on the floor, which you absolutely have to do unequivocally no matter what. So I think this is the Lakers team we see for the entire year because I don't think that the role guys are their problem, and we haven't seen Kendrick Nunn yet which I guess could be significant because maybe he's one of the best five or six guys on this team. Same with Wayne Ellington. I think both those guys are among the better role players on this roster who can bring you some valuable things. Ellington with the spacing and then none with some of the actual shot creation and a little bit of playmaking as well. But is that going to make you completely change your outlook on this team? Probably not because they are very fundamentally flawed and I think are marching towards anything but a title season right now. Like, what we will see again is improvement. We will see these guys strike a balance a little bit more. We will probably see a stretch of the regular season where they absolutely go on a tear, but I just don't trust the offensive hierarchy enough here, the clarity of that. I just don't trust the spacing enough. I just don't think that they have been, again, as impressive defensively as they have been the last couple years. Nothing about this Lakers team right now looks like a title contender, except maybe if you were going to put on paper the names and say, this is the raw talent, add up your superstar points. But that's not good enough because you need to fit together. You need to gel to win in a significant way in the NBA. So they're not off to a phenomenal start. I think it's safe to say that. Uh, my final question, then we'll move on to uh, to another takeaway. So I, I asked you this last time out. If you had full control, now that you've seen some games, 80 at the 5, you run either LeBron at the 4 or the 3. If you had the option to run Russ off of the bench, like what is your starting 5? What is how are you how are you staggering these lineups if everybody's healthy? Well, I don't know that I even would bring Russ off the bench because it's like I don't know if you're even maximizing his value doing that, like what I think you need to do is every minute that LeBron is not on the floor, Russ is on the floor. And other than that, if you're bringing him off the bench, I mean, what are you doing? Playing him 20 minutes a night? Because. No, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying complete. You know what? I, I'm saying exact, essentially that, that you're staggering those minutes. What I'm saying though is, are you putting, like, instead of having DeAndre Jordan out there, are you putting Melo out there? Like, what is the most cohesive lineup alongside these guys? Because, like, I don't know, man. I just feel like all of these role players essentially, yeah, like, Bazemore does some good stuff, but all of them, all of them are flawed. I think that healthy Wayne Ellington and Kendrick Nunn should be starting over Bazemore and DeAndre Jordan. But let me be clear. There is no reality in which Russell Westbrook does not start for this team. No reality. That's just not going to happen. It's obviously just a tough look when you bring in a guy at that value, and more importantly, there is no way that his ego is going to accommodate a request that significant. This is a dude who probably still thinks he's the best player on the planet, and that's just not the reality, obviously. So, Lakers, man, an interesting team to track, obviously, here. I am not ready to totally say the sky is falling or whatever because I'm really just not that shocked. Like I said, I wouldn't be surprised at all if they were 500 through 20 games. These were all their major issues that we identified. It's been really, really ugly, and they don't look like a Western Conference Finals team right now, which is what I predicted them to be, but I am far from saying that they can't get there. So my first takeaway, Logan, is from a major market team on the opposite coast, and that is just that I love this New York Knicks team. And I am a guy who 
ahead of last season was as low as you could have been on the Knicks throughout the season, remained a relative Knicks skeptic, and was very confident that they were going to get done away with in that first round series against the Hawks. But dude, I also loved their offseason, and I made a video about it, how much I loved the pickups of Fournier and Kemba, and what they have now is just this deep, competitive, actually offensively gifted, all-around really great team. What I think stands out the most still is the defensive intensity, the activeness of these guys' hands, their ability to make plays and force mistakes on that end, which is great because when you add Kemba and Fournier, maybe you question if you lose that. Those guys haven't been exceptional, but I do think that they're competing on defense. And through two games, the Knicks have 19 steals. They have 37 turnovers forced. That is very much feeding into the success of Obi Toppin, who I think is another huge win for this team right now because he looks good. He looks like what we expected him to be. Logan, you're making a face there. He's not a star, obviously, and he was never going to be, but he is a productive offensive player. He's giving you 13 and a half a game on 65% shooting. He has 12 fast break points. He's leaking out in transition. He's rolling to the bucket in the half court. He's hit two threes. If you are expecting him to be an eighth man, he's pretty damn good offensively. Like he understands his role. He can space the floor vertically and with his shooting. And again, I like that he helps his team play with a little bit more pace and stretches because obviously they did not have that identity last year. I was just making that face. And I agree with all those points. And I think Obi brings, I think you're exactly right. He brings a certain energy to this roster that I really like. I mean, hell, dude. He had MSG rocking. Anytime that kid hits the floor, OB, OB. The people, they love him. So, like, it's just what kills me is, dude, the defense gives him so many open corner and wing looks, and he clangs so many of them. Like, I love him in transition. I love him as a role man. I love him as a lob threat. But some points in this game, I'm like, dude, if they just had a catch and shooter, like, they could be just building monumentous leads. I agree with all the points you made. I just, I need Obi to come along as a little bit better catch and shooter um, for me to really like him in the lineup. Like, don't get me wrong. You're right. As an eighth or ninth man, the kid's electric, but I just wish he would hit a little more of his catch and shoot attempts. Yeah, he was two of five from deep last game, and I think that we obviously saw his ability to shoot in college, and he was not outstanding there last year, but do I think he can hit 35% of his threes? I do. So I think that that is a testament, again, to their kind of newfound ability to get out in transition, and then also just the depth, dude. I mean, we knew it, but when you add two top guys to this roster, all of a sudden, the burden on everybody who was on last year's team is kind of alleviated. You don't need Derrick Rose and Alec Burks to be your second and third offensive creators. Like, that's what they were asking in that Hawks series. It was ridiculous, and Derrick Rose was their best offensive player. Now he can just be a really good sixth man. Now you have this depth with quickly coming off the bench with, like I said, Alec Burks. Jericho Sims is playing a little bit and I think looks solid out there. Like, it's just a really good team, nine deep. And offensively, there is a different level of dynamism. Having Mitchell Robinson back, I think, shows his value. I mean, he's obviously a simple player, but pretty damn good at what he does. Just a big, imposing presence in there. Going to fight on the glass and whatnot. Julius Randle is off to every bit as an impressive start as... You could have asked for from him after, obviously, a tremendous season last year, but then a really rough finish. He's giving you 28-9-8. Evan Fournier, with that overtime explosion against the Celtics, is giving you 
50 points through two games. So, again, it's just a different level of versatility on offense. It is a different level of depth. They are just really, really good, dude. And I think that every Eastern Conference playoff team is going to be really, really good. But they are, to me, in the same tier, probably, as the fifth, sixth best teams in the East. Like, I don't think they're in a separate tier from the Bulls or the Hawks. Maybe the Sixers now, if they fall down into that group, like, they are really that good. They could win 50 games. Logan freaked out there when I said that about the Sixers. But I was confident they were going to win in the high 40s. I loved what I saw in preseason. I loved their offseason moves. And now we are seeing it all play out there to where Kemba hasn't even been exceptional through two games, and they've looked like a completely different team. This MF is spitting, all right? And look, dude, I wrote down, this is also one of my takeaways. I don't know how you can have watched the Knicks through two games and not just be floored, man. I wrote down, the Knicks are back. You touch on the defense, Carson, and I love the uh, I love the personnel. Everybody is putting it, everybody is trying and giving effort. They're anchored by two dominant rim protectors at all time. Anytime you have Mitchell Robinson and Nerlens Noel on the court, you were getting you know, great rim protection. Even when Jericho Sims is out there, I love him defensively. You talk about the active hands, Barrett, Fournier, like everybody is putting in effort. But dude, the offense is finally legit. And the biggest thing to me, you touched on it, is the additions of Walker and Fournier. But the biggest thing to me, dude, is Randall is even being more empowered as a facilitator because of the additional spacing he has around mm-hmm. him. Like, you can't double-team this guy and expect not you know guys not to make you pay anymore. And he's still getting those tough mid-range buckets and knocking down perimeter shots. Like, I don't know, man. I feel like people got a wrong... I feel like people jumped to a lot of conclusions about Randall in the playoffs this last season, and it was because of the situation around him. Like, bruh. What, who's he getting? He's going to kick it to Alfred Payton? Mm-hmm. No. Now that he's got Kemba and Fournier, like, you can't do that anymore. Guys are getting, they're getting, uh, he's making them pay for double teaming them. You've got two really good pick and roll creators here. Fournier, decent off the dribble, but he's absolutely lights out off the catch. And man, do I love the Fournier-Randall pick and roll, dude. If it's Randall setting the screen, if it's Fournier setting the screen, these guys make good decisions. They kick it to open guys, and... I don't know, man. You talk about Kemba not being up to form. I think he heard me, dude. I think he is back to form. Like, he was knocking down shots off the dribble, a lot of pull-up threes against the Magic. I know it's just Orlando, but Kemba looked deadly, um, like, pulling up from the perimeter there. He knocked down a couple of pull-up threes early in that game. Um, I love R.J. Barrett. He's looked okay. He, he's, he, he's obviously had less of a half-court role here, but he's still knocking down open looks. He's driving hard to the rack. He looks more confident on his pull-ups in mid-range. He's tremendous in transition. Like, this roster just up and down is so drastically improved offensively. And then you have three creators off the bench. Like, this is as deep as a team out east as you're going to get. And I completely agree that they are in the tier of the Heat Bulls um, you know, that kind of range of teams, like, if it comes playoff time, man, like, I don't, if they're a six seed, that is going to be a competitive-ass mm-hmm. 6-3 matchup, no matter who it is. If it's Brooklyn, if it's Milwaukee, if it's whoever it is, like, 
the Knicks are going to be a dogged team defensively. And like again, like I said, the biggest thing is they are not going to have those same half-court issues that they had in the playoffs last season. And like I said, dude, we are seeing it with Julius Randle, bro. The, the guy is, he's not a transcendent playmaker, but he is such a big body and such a lights-out mid-range shooter that he is still collapsing defenses at such a high level. And now there are just pieces around him where you cannot double him like that because you have seen it, man. The Knicks are making guys pay for defensive missteps, and it is beautiful basketball. And it's not just like, dude, guys are sharing it. The offense is fluid. I love the Knicks, dude. I am. Mm-hmm. I just love watching Knicks basketball. They are deep. They are fun to watch. They play beautiful basketball. They play hard defense. I would not be surprised if we see the Knicks get to 50 wins this season. Yeah, and you'd make a good point there with the ball movement. And just, again, it speaks to the depth of options that they have now. Last year, it was pretty simple, and we saw what the Hawks did. Everything was on the shoulders of Julius Randle. And it was, hey, we can just send a second defender at him once he gets that mid-range area. We can help off of shooters. They are not going to make us pay. And that worked. That effectively eliminated that Knicks offense, along with some struggles of Randall on his own. But he was making good decisions as a passer throughout that series. It was just dudes weren't punishing the defense. And now you have not only guys who can knock down those shots, but guys who can attack closeouts, who can facilitate, who can make good decisions, and again, get themselves their shots, like, it's just a completely different team. It is a completely different team, and it is a scary team. To touch on the Kemba point, I said he hasn't been exceptional. He has 21 points through two games. So, like, I've been a believer in Kemba is going to look like Kemba this year, but production-wise, I think he pretty obviously has not lived up to what you could reasonably expect from him, but they haven't needed that, and they don't need some major offensive load night tonight from really anybody and Randall still can play that point forward role he can still go off as we saw against the Celtics and demonstrate that tough bucket getting and that playmaking and all of that is great but again they have other options they have other creators who can take some of that responsibility off of his shoulders and that is just going to make this success so much more sustainable so they have looked exactly like I hoped they would I think that they absolutely crushed this offseason and maybe they're not going to win a title but they have in two years under Leon Rose, built a team better than what they have had damn near in my lifetime. I mean, with the exception of the one mellow season, this is like the best Knicks team that I've ever seen. And I feel very confident saying that already. I completely agree. Um, while we're on it, do you want to talk about the Celtics game at all? If you want to. I mean, I, I just thought... Uh, Jalen Brown, I thought, put on a master class in that game. Obviously, he had the, like, was it, like, 20, I want to say, like, 25 first quarter points. He went off. Um, but he hits that crazy shot over Fournier. Dude, it was just such a crazy series of events because just as that game, you know, drudged on, I was like, you know, it was competitive throughout, but I just came away with the feeling uh, the Knicks are just, you know, slightly yeah. better, you know? And I, I, I didn't ever go away from that despite it going into double OT and being super close. I just thought, um, I thought they covered this well at the end of the game. What the hell was that at the on the last possession? Fournier goes up and doubles the ball handler. They kick it to, uh, they kick it to somebody else and they move it to Smart. Kemba drops below the perimeter. I just thought, for such a smart defensive team, what a stupid last defensive possession to let this go into OT. Like the Knicks should have easily won this game. No, that was hilarious. 
It's like they're focused on taking away the two when it's, hey, fellas, you're up three here. Yeah, I agree with you about just the general feeling of this game. After the first quarter, I thought consistently the Knicks just felt better. There was a stretch in the second quarter when they started to close the gap where it was just like they were forcing turnovers, they were getting out in transition, and I was like, this team is just deeper, they're more intense, they have a higher two-way ceiling, and Celtics, man, they may be in a little bit of trouble, dude. I don't know. They have not been all that impressive through a couple of games here, clearly, and they had the nightmare Jason Tatum performance in the first one where it was just nothing would fall, but they just have the same issue of lacking offensive direction, and they're just a weird basketball team to watch. So with that, Logan, I'll throw it back over to you. What's your second takeaway from these first few days of basketball? Uh, so my second takeaway here is uh, a team, another team that you actually did a video on, Carson. Also, so that was one of my takeaways. So I'm actually on to three if you want to take the reins oh, here. Beautiful. Well, I guess I will. I think it's going to be about the same team you were about to talk about here, Logan. Were you about to talk about the Minnesota Timberwolves? I actually wasn't. Go ahead. Oh, okay. Well, look, I think the Timberwolves are the best team in basketball. I think that they may win 76 <laughs> or 77 games, and I think that they're probably going to win nine or ten straight championships. Man, I love this team, dude. I love the Minnesota Timberwolves. And I'm so glad that when I was taking away wins from everybody during my preseason predictions to make sure I got to 500, I did not take any from the Timberwolves, and I put them in my second play-in spot because it is just everything that we knew to be true about this team has been fully put on display now that they're healthy. Ant is a genuine star, dude. This guy is going to be one of the best second-year guards we have seen in a long time. And athletically, it's always been there. The handle has been there. As last year progressed, we saw some of the shot selection improve. We saw some of the playmaking come out. And he opens up this game, goes 6 of 12 from deep. Like, his shot, there were times where it looked great last year, but it was inconsistent. I just think there's a different level of consistency there. And I think that that is an incredible weapon in his game now, and that was a super encouraging performance. I think he's going to score 25 a game this year, as I've said. Cat is a top 20 player in basketball unequivocally and is so underappreciated for how generational of a talent that he is. And then, again, when you have D'Angelo Russell as your third offensive option, even if he isn't always the easiest fit, that's pretty damn good. When you have Malik Beasley as an option off your bench, that's pretty damn good. The offense, even though it was an issue last year, I think that I had faith in turning a lot of stuff around this year because of just that overwhelming talent quotient. What I loved about this game against the Rockets was the energy, the defense, the pace at which they played. They had 18 steals, Logan. 18 steals. Forced 24 turnovers. Had 31 fast break points. And this is a team that liked to get out last year. They played with the fifth fastest pace. But you just see their athleticism on display. And again, they are locked in. They are playing hard and with passion. And that has just kind of been the issue for this team. It's that they never had that synergy. They never had that feel. They never had that chemistry. They never had those extended stretches where they were all healthy together. And now that we are seeing it, it is so impressive. Jaden McDaniels in this game was phenomenal, dude. Like I have said before, I think that he's going to be a top 50 guy in this league. But defensively, in his first game as a second-year player, gives you four steals, two blocks, is playing so many different roles defensively. He's guarding the pick-and-roll as a big man effectively and is switching on to either position at a really high level. He is 
forcing turnovers on big men, stripping balls. He is clamping on the perimeter. Like, his feet, his hands, his instincts, his intensity, outstanding. Outstanding. And it will always blow my mind that two years ago we saw this guy and he couldn't start for a Washington Huskies team that was, like, among the worst in the Pac-12. That he was this lackadaisical character who floated in and out, who was seen as kind of a waste of talent, almost, dare I say. And now he is just balling out in his role. So, this team has a lot, dude. They have two legitimate stars, two very legitimate stars, who, by the way, especially Ant, are just going to get better. And I do believe that long-term, if they put the right pieces around them, this team has a championship ceiling. They have spacing in just a different way from what they did last year when shooting was an issue for them. They have the star creation coming from multiple spots. They have the effort. They have solid enough depth. They are going to be a play-in team. Very, very little doubt in my mind about that, especially given what we've seen from the Pelicans with Zion not coming back for at least a few more weeks. Nobody else in the West has impressed me as much, and they've only played one game, and it was against the Houston Rockets, so we'll see how they build on that. But I am just juice team, dude. I love what I saw from the Timberwolves. Yeah, you know, with Zion moving to defensive tackle and, uh, <laughs> and everything. Um, yeah, dude, I, I, I'm i going to touch on a couple things. First, you talk about the two stars. What better star pairing, like, could you just imagine in your brain? Like, Anthony and Kat go together like peanut butter and jelly, bro. Like, it is a guy that loves to collapse the paint. And a guy that can space the floor beautifully, like, it just opens up the lane for him. So, like, out of the pick and roll, there's a wide lane for Ant to attack. It's just, they work perfectly together, dude, and I completely agree. If you continue to put the assets around them, I have supreme confidence in this being a championship ceiling duo. Obviously, it is going to require Ant continuing to develop that shot off the dribble in his pull-up shooting, but again... He is a workhorse. He is one of the most confident players I have ever seen. There's a playmaking ceiling there with the with the attention that he draws. And I also want to say, Carson may have not made a video on him as well, but I can tell you, Nerd Sesh fans, that Carson has been adamant that Anthony Edwards would be an all-star this year, that he would take this leap, that he was going to be this kind of special player in his second season. So while he may not made an official take or video on it, I can promise you that he has, spoke, he has spoke that into the ether a, uh, a multitude of times. I also want to say, man, Jaden McDaniels is a beast. Like, his, uh, you touched on it, and, and it just astounds me. The way he is, his defensive versatility with his hands out of the pick and roll, switching on to roll men, switching on to ball handlers, his long-ass arms, man. It's like he gets into every little passing lane out of the short roll when they're trying to kick it to the roll man. He's just... He is a defensive, he's like a, I don't want to like oversell his offensive impact because I still think he has strides to come as a mm-hmm. catch and shooter, as a cutter, stuff like that. The guy's Macau Bridges level is like a defender. Like, I already believe that. I think he should be better. I'm, you think so? Well, I just think he is capable of guarding fours and uh, not true centers or anything, but I think he's capable of switching on to those sort of hybrid bigs more. Macau is great at guarding those perimeter guys. I think that Jaden can give you most of what he does there and then more 
interior switchability. Even though he doesn't have this like overwhelming frame, he's just got good positional instincts. He's got good hands, and he makes it work. And let, let me ask you this. Um, I know we've only seen one game of them, and it was against Houston. Who are you riding with? Who do you have more confidence in? Who do you think is going to win more games? Uh, T-Wolves or Grizzlies? T-Wolves. Give me it, dude. I think that what we needed to see from the Timberwolves is exactly what we saw in this game because they are more talented than the Grizzlies. But the Grizzlies have this reliable culture, this identity that just doesn't go away and is going to get them close to 500 year in, year out, every single time. And this depth, and they're well coached. But dude, I mean, Anthony Edwards and Carl Anthony Towns are both better players than the best dude on the Grizzlies. And no disrespect to Jaw, but I think that Ant this year is already going to show that he is just a more developed all-around offensive talent. And Cat is obviously in a completely different league. And then their third and fourth options offensively are probably more gifted players than any dude other than John Morant on that Grizzlies roster. So the Grizzlies have the synergy, the continuity advantages, but if the Timberwolves can close that gap, which they did because they looked like a team that understood each other, that was playing, again, with passion in this game, then I just think they're clearly more talented. So I would not be surprised at all if they were above 500, and I am starting to think about if they could be a legitimate top eight playoff team given some of the flaws that we may have seen from maybe a trailblazers, just how bad they can be defensively. I don't know, dude. I'm impressed because they're athletic defensively. Like, they have that advantage. And they're young and spry. And if they can channel this energy going forward, I do think they can be competent there. So I think they're a play-in team, very confident. I'm not ready to say top eight playoff yet, but they are really good, dude. And... You mentioned it. I didn't make a video on Ant. I did spend probably five minutes on Ant in the video I made about the Timberwolves last year, though, titled Why the NBA's Worst Team Has One of Its Brightest Futures. You can go ahead and check that out if you want. But I did talk about how much I love Cat, how much I love Ant, how much I love Jaden McDaniels, and it's been rewarding to see it this early. All right, so now we'll go to you for apparently another team that I made a video about. Very interesting. Who were we talking about for your third takeaway, Logan? Uh, I was talking about the Chicago Bulls, and I mean, basically, my takeaway is that they're just one of the most fun teams in basketball. Like, I don't know how you can't just, like, I know that's kind of like a, it's kind of a simplistic take, you know what I mean? Like, I don't really have, like, a take to justify it, but it's just a, it's just a fun team. They've been pretty hopeless, you know, since the departure of D-Rose and those teams and that kind of identity. I mean, what, are you going to get excited about Tomas Sadoransky and old-ass Dwayne Wade? No. But, you know, I'm not a big narrative guy, but there's a lot of fan favorites here who are just fun to watch and easy to root for. You got DeMar DeRozan, a guy who grinded away in Toronto, worked his ass off, got dealt away as a key piece and the reason they got their championship, has been working his ass off in San Antonio, and can now win here. Zach Levine. One of the bounciest guys in the league has struggled with injuries, got dealt away from Minnesota as like a throwaway. You know, oh, Levine's, Levine might be washed. We don't want him anymore. And now he's here as just a, as one of the best pure buckets in the league. Lonzo, I got banished from Los Angeles. He hit his stride in New Orleans and again, can play winning basketball. Vucevic, 
Another guy just toiled away in Orlando for bad teams, made the playoffs like once, like and now has a chance to play winning basketball. Patrick Williams, just a hustler, a workhorse. Now, I don't want to dog on the guy. I think Pat's kind of slightly overrated as a defender, mm-hmm. in my opinion. Granted, he has been tasked with guarding the other team's best player routinely. I just think he's, I don't know, man. He's got kind of like kind of slow reaction time. Like he's just kind of, I don't know, man. I, I'm not a... I'm not perfect at reading guys' defensive flaws, but he's just, he's a little slow. Absolutely. Like, it's just, I just, I think he's just a little overrated as a pure lock. He's a good defender, don't get me wrong, but he's not this shutdown guy. But don't get me wrong, he's a guy you can easily root for. Well, I just want to accentuate that point because this was one of my big questions about this team, actually, is can he legitimately guard top-end wings? Because he's strong, he has unbelievable hands. I think that's what gets him the most attention. Like, he's a, a nuts playmaker in that sense. But he's not super quick, crazy mobile for a wing defensively, which you he's really probably a four in this league, but he's going to have to guard some of those top-end wings. So I agree with that point. Yeah, and I mean, B.I. Was, was lighting him up. Like, he was just getting to his spots. And like, again, it's... Pat's staying with him, and he's fighting through screens, but he's just, yeah, he just doesn't have that top-end agility where I think he can be a, he can shut down, a, you know, another team's really uh, best scorer. Uh, you know, you got, but but again, like, Pat's not, it doesn't just extend past the starting five. There's other guys on this bench you can root for. Alex Caruso, I mean, a, a you know, cue ball, bald white dude with a headband, looks like Elmer Fudd, but Caruso's a dog, man. He works, he's energetic, he's... He's just a fun guy. I mean, yeah, he's goofy looking, and that's part of the why. That's part of the reason you can root for him. But he works, and he showed that in L.A. He earned himself that spot in that rotation there from A and M. Like, had to grind through the G League. Uh, Javante Green. I don't know how you cannot like Javante, man. That is my guy. He is bouncy. He is. He works on the defensive end. He's got active hands. He's just. He's my guy. And then you got Alize Johnson, uh, G League Rodman. <laughs> like, I, I just. I love a lot of these guys on the team. They're easy to root for. And also, man, they're fun to watch. A bunch of guys who like to push the ball in transition yeah. no matter who's on the floor. You talk about Lonzo, Levine, DeMar, Caruso, or again, my boy Javante. They all love to push the pace, uh, get up on, um, get up for those big-time jams. And then you just talk about the skill sets. And I think, Carson, above all else, the most important, I'll get into their individual skill sets, but the point that you made in your video there are a bunch of pieces that you didn't like individually but could come together to make something special happen and win. And I think it can't. Lonzo, a genius-level facilitator. He sees everything on the floor. Lonzo, an uber-athletic, just scoring machine. DeMar, super crafty mid-range bucket, but he's also grown so much as a playmaker. And then Vucevic, he's a marksman off the catch. Like, he's shitty defensively, but a supreme catch-and-shooter. It's just the Chicago Bulls have built a beautiful Frankenstein here, and it can work. And again, like they're just, they are a whole lot of fun. They're fun to watch. They are, they push the pace. They play beautiful offensive basketball. Like they're just fun, man. I, and it looks like they're having fun out Mm -hmm. there, man. Like the energy in, uh, the energy in the United Center was awesome. Lonzo looks happy. Levine looks happy that he's not the only offensive creator out there. It's just, Damn, the Bulls are fun, dude. It was it was electric out there watching their first game. This is going to be one of the most fun teams in basketball. And if there's one thing that has been probably most encouraging to me, 
it's been what we have seen from this group as a whole defensively because I think that that was certainly a question about this team. There was a time where I thought, yeah, they're just not going to be able to do it. But then I started to think, you know, Billy Donovan is a really good defensive coach. They have athleticism on the wings with the Rosen and Levine. Those guys just haven't always been committed to that end or really never have been all that committed to that end. But maybe they can find some of that motivation and find an ability to make some plays on that end this year. And I think that we have seen that come into fruition a little bit thus far, like they held the Pistons to 88. Sure, that's not an overwhelming accomplishment, but they also held down the Pelicans offense for a significant portion of that game. And again, maybe that's not the biggest deal in the world where they don't have Zion Williamson, but they held them to 47 in the first half. Like, they have the athletes. I think that they have the coaching. And part of that is also, as you mentioned, the guys who come in off the bench and just bring that energy. Caruso and Javante Green in that Pelicans game, dude, it's like, they are electric coming in. And Caruso is a very good first guy to have coming off your bench. So I don't know if this bench goes crazy deep, but their first few guys off, I do like. Maybe they need a little bit more depth as far as the big men go. I know that you're a big fan of Alizé Johnson. I don't know if you want him to be your top big man coming off the bench. I know that you're also a big Tony Bradley fan. I don't know if you want that either. But at the end of the day... That's not going to hold this team back from winning a whole lot of games, which they are going to do. I think that the fit does work offensively. I mean, they have possessions where, you know, DeRozan can be your creator and facilitator and Lonzo can be spotting up off ball or where Levine is going out there and attacking and finding the open guy. Or there are times when Lonzo's bringing it up and DeRozan and Levine are cutting off of that and like, it just works, dude. It just works. There's an overwhelming amount of talent here. There is a lot of shooting here. There is a lot of athleticism. There are a lot of dudes who can get their own buckets. And it is a testament to a lot of these guys individually because it's like you said, and it's like I said in my video, I have been skeptical throughout so many of their careers about their ability to impact winning at the highest level compared to how they are really perceived by the masses, by a lot of other people who obviously watch and care about basketball. And I think that this is now a situation in which they have found the fit that works. They have found the environment that works. And they're going to be really fun. They could win a playoff series. Maybe they could do more than that, dude. Like, if they can find that defensive ceiling, there's not a whole lot of teams in basketball better than this one. And I think that their win over-under was 42.5, if I'm not mistaken, which is, like, egregious. I think we both picked them to win 50 games, right? I had him at 49, but... Okay. Oh, my yeah. God. Who set that line? Uh, the wise guys in Vegas. I don't know. Easiest win over probably of any team. But, yeah, man. Bulls, a lot of fun. All right. For my third takeaway, we're going to talk about a team that out east we were not quite as high on. I was a little higher on than you, but... I think that we just saw a really impressive game from Scotty Barnes and the Toronto Raptors. I'll focus on Scotty Barnes uh, because he was phenomenal. But I think the Raptors as a whole, again, have just sort of found their identity. That doesn't mean that they're going to be a great team, but that means they have shown us very clearly what they can do well and how they need to attack going forward. When it comes to Scotty, who had 25-13 and 13 against the Celtics, phenomenal game. This was outstanding. Like, to see from a second guy who, sure, was the number four pick in the draft, but also it was, he still needs to refine some stuff in his game. 
he had a handful of pull-up jumpers in this game, including a pull-up three, where it's maybe not the prettiest shot, but looked generally smooth. He looked confident and comfortable getting into it, but then also he is attacking in transition, as you would expect. He is dominating on the glass. He had six offensive boards in this one, and it's just like his athleticism pops compared to everybody else on the floor at all times, and he had a plus 29 plus minus in this game. So it's just... You know, maybe he doesn't have the crazy developed perimeter skill set of a Kate Cunningham or a Jalen Green. Of course, he's not there. I don't think he ever needs to be there to be a star level player. But he does so many different things as we expected well to just find his buckets. And then he did show some of that legitimate creation where I was kind of like, whoa, this dude is a player right now. And we saw that in preseason. He was balling out. He was showing the playmaking. He was showing the athleticism. But this dude is really, really good. And if he reaches the defensive ceiling that we would anticipate, given how impressive his athletic tools are on that end, and just given his motor and his constant engagement, man, he can be a really great player. And just a testament to how great this rookie class is overall. But again, I think that the Raptors overall, you know, they've got a few Scotty Barnes-esque guys. And just they have these crazy long athletes. Precious Achua had 15 and 15 in this game and is pretty outstanding and can do some of the handling, can do some of the pushing and transition, but just another, again, versatile athlete. OG Ananobi was 4 of 18 in this game, but that is super deceptive. He got to the rim a bunch. I mean, he was overpowering dudes athletically, looked really impressive. He was 3 of 9 on shots inside 5 feet. Like, that's how he ends up having kind of a crummy day statistically that's not going to be sustained for a long time. And we know what he can do defensively, how athletic he is. And so I just think overall, what we saw against the Celtics is in half court, they are going to struggle to manufacture offense because they don't have that lead number one high-end creator. They don't have overwhelming floor spacing. But what they do have are these multiple ball handlers who can just go nuts in transition, and that's what they did. They had 22 fast break points. They had 58 points in the paint, just repeatedly got to the bucket, and that is all fed by the fact that they had 16 steals and forced 25 turnovers. So, like, when they were getting out in transition, it looked effortless. When they weren't, it looked pretty labored. So that needs to be their identity to me. It needs to be... Defense first, obviously. I think they can be a top 10 defense because they have such great athletes there and they're so well coached. And then attack and transition on offense. Push, push, push. Because I don't want Fred Van Vliet being your primary guy in the half court. I don't want Siakam, even when he's back, having this overwhelming number one option load in the half court. But if they can just get out and run with these guys, they can find some success. I don't think that they have the talent needed to be a playing team in my opinion because what we've seen from the top eight teams I mean maybe with the exception of the Celtics my projected top eight teams but I still have faith in Tatum and Jalen getting them where they need to go and then the Pacers and the Hornets there's probably still a little bit of gap in talent between them and the Raptors but if they play to their strengths consistently I don't know they could knock on the door I think there's a big gap for me between Mm -hmm. Indiana Charlotte and Toronto for sure but I mean I don't know how you cannot be impressed by uh, by Toronto and what they did in their first game. I mean, they made life hard on Boston's offense. I'm not saying that's the most difficult thing to do when you have two creators like that. I think Boston's going to struggle regardless. But, yeah, man, the defense is superb. 
superb. Like, mm-hmm. there's not only guys that they're all switchable, they're all versatile, and I am so glad that this Raptors squad gave the keys to Achua at the five. He is, he's just, I love him, man. I love the the athleticism, the ferocity, the tenacity on the glass. Scotty, to me, I liked I liked what I saw to Scotty for sure. I was definitely skeptical of all, of his offensive game. What is that face? I'm just shocked that you seem to be like mixed about it. I thought he played a fantastic game. Yeah, no, I mean I was definitely impressed. I just I'm just skeptical as Raptors of a whole. Like I know we didn't see Spicy P, and I think I think you identified their biggest issue, and that's in the half court. And I think maybe if we see Malachi Flynn later, like he played three minutes in this game. Maybe he can remedy some of those issues. They need another high-level creator. But I will say, for Raptors fans, for the future, this is a lot of fun. Like, if all the Raptors really need to be competitive, and this is obviously the toughest asset to get in basketball, it's what Mm -hmm. takes every NBA team up another level, is that high-level half-court creator who can get you buckets out of the pick-and-roll, who can knock down shots from the perimeter. Again, obviously... That's the toughest asset to land. That's all they're missing before they are back in that playoff contention category. You have got three really stout defensive wings, OG, Scotty, Achua. Well, Achua's a big, but still really versatile, really switchable. They all work. Pascal is not as good defensively, but he has a decent offensive game. Like, I don't know, man. I see a, I see a way in the future where they can build a, a real contender but yeah, it is going to require them getting that high-level creator. Personally, I think with the depth of wings here, with the addition of Achua, I've said this before, I'd move on from Spicy P and i just try to get, I don't know who's biting, I don't know who is giving up their their point guard and get them buckets out of the pick and roll to pull the trigger on that. Spicy P would be the guy that i move off of, maybe for a first-round pick. I just, I think he's probably the odd man out because I believe in these young assets as winning basketball players more mm-hmm. than I believe in Siakam. Yeah, he's a bit of a weird fit in a lot of different situations and also probably a guy who's the most attractive to teams that are trying to go out there and win a lot of games because he's clearly the most developed player. Yeah, I think that these guys have complementary skill sets. I think that, again, they can find their identity, and I agree with you about what's missing for this team. So I still don't think they're a play-in team, and I think that there is a major gap in just how easily offense comes compared to them and the Pacers and the Hornets. Cause like, it's just, it's so easy for those two teams, but I do really like what we saw defensively. I do like the depth. I do like the athleticism. I do like just the effort. And I think that that will always find a way to win you in the mid thirties games when you have the amount of talent that they do. So there you have it. A little bit of praise for the Raptors. Let's keep moving. What's your fourth takeaway? It's a, uh, it's a team that you just mentioned, and a team that offense comes to very, very easily. LaMelo Ball will be an all-star, and the Hornets will have a top 10 fringe top five offense in basketball. I couldn't just say LaMelo was going to be an all-star. That would be stealing Carson's take and his video. The kid's balling right now, though. 24, 6.5, and, and 6 on 54, 67, 100 splits right now. LaMelo has been freaky, but I just love Charlotte's offense. They're fifth in offensive rating right now, and you just watch, man. The ball movement is impeccable. There are so many unselfish guys up and down this roster, and you can look at what they did last year. They were fourth in passes. They were fourth in potential potential assists. They were fifth in assists and seventh in secondary assists last season, and I think you see the unselfishness by the scoring totals. It is so spread out amongst everyone. 
And then you just get into the to the pieces here. You've got a couple of great pick-and-roll ball handlers, LaMelo, Terry Rozier, Gordon Hayward, all guys that can create for themselves and spread the ball around. This offense is moving a lot more smoothly with Mason Plumlee in there instead of Zeller. Um, Plumlee's a great decision maker. He's always setting screens, rolling to the bucket. Now, I think defensively, I think they still need a straight-up genuine rim protector. He got baptized by Jared Allen a few times. I oh. mean, whew. Allen just put it on that man, dude. I, I, I pitied Mason. Um, but then, man, like, you get to the other assets here, like, Kelly Oubre and Bridges are in the perfect light-it-up-off-the-bench role for Charlotte. And look, I know Bridges starts, but he gets a ton of burn against bench units as well. Um, And I know Oubre started in spot for Rozier. Um, Either way, these guys are just pure buckets, man. They're both solid off the dribble and the catch. They're going to be slightly efficient, but they get to their spots, and they are just... They're so supremely confident in themselves to take those shots and knock them down. And they do fall. Like, they're highly hyper-athletic, explosive guys who can bully bench units. They can play make to an extent because of the attention they draw driving to the lane. They're really good assets to hear. And they both set screens. They roll to the rack well. They're pretty good decision makers out of the short roll. They just work here. PJ, another great rim runner. He's unselfish. He makes good decisions. He makes good decisions as well out of the short roll. He's a decent catch and shooter. He crashes the boards hard. And I mean, you look at the Cavs game, they just started running away from them, man. This team is great in transition. They were running the floor, pushing the pace. They created over 30 points off turnovers against Cleveland. And Carson, I think they just wore Cleveland out. Like, this was a tight game heading into the fourth. And I think this Cavs defense just got tired. They were tired of of the Hornets moving the ball around the arc. And the defense just couldn't keep up. Like, it was just... So fluid here at the end of this game, moving it around the perimeter. And the defense, like I said, man, they just got tired of closing out on shooters and having to make rotations, and they just they immediately just widened the gap. So, look, man, here in Charlotte, you have got a completely unselfish identity between everybody here. You've got a bunch of hyper-athletic isolation buckets. You've got good shooters all around. And basically, two all-star caliber players who are great at generating points out of the pick and roll. Defensively, I think I still have my issues with guys effort-wise and Mason Plumley is this, you know, genuine five straight-up rim-protecting presence. But I have no questions about this offense. This is going to be one of the best in the NBA this season. Yeah, super impressive. And I think that it's what you said in part that there's just a versatility of options here and... Uh, just so many ways in which they can attack you. And I have to say, another team early on that has popped because of its athleticism and its ability to attack in transition. Like, they're fourth in pace right now. They have forced 22 steals. And when you have LaMelo Ball on your team and you have Miles Bridges on your team and you have the kind of athletes that they do, that's a pretty good formula to create easy offense. So there's really nobody on this team who hasn't looked impressive. I guess Rogier because he's only played in the one game and he wasn't very good. But other than that, dude, Oubre has been impressive. I mean, he's knocked down a decent amount of his triples, and that's kind of always the swing factor with him because other than that, athletically, defensively, you know what he can do. It's just, can he make decent enough decisions and hit shots? But Miles Bridges, man, when we talked about most improved and our candidates for that award, he was the one guy who, after we recorded the podcast immediately, I was like, man, I should have said something about Miles Bridges because the last 20 games of last year, he was giving you 20 a game on like 
50-40 something splits. Like, he has the bag. He has, obviously, the nuts athletic gifts. He has the pure shooting. He is going to be a really good player this year. I think he'll score upwards of 18 a game, and I think he'll do so pretty darn efficiently. The only thing, honestly, that maybe I could say I wish selfishly is that LaMelo had the keys to this offense even more because he's been incredible, but he's also done that in not an overwhelming amount of opportunities. Like, he's been ridiculously efficient so far. He's shooting 54% from the field. He's 8 of 12 from deep. He's been great in transition. But I still think that there is obviously a kind of dynamic where a bunch of different guys have to get their touches. Gordon Hayward has to facilitate in stretches. Rozier will have to have those touches. Miles Bridges too. Kelly Oubre. There's a lot of cooks in the kitchen. I think that it works. But I also do think that LaMelo is that kind of maestro bring it all together, score at a high level, and facilitate, hit shooters. We've only seen him play 29 minutes a game thus far, and he has been unbelievably good, and And I think he will be in the all-star conversation. I think that he is this team's best player. I almost just want to see him unleashed a little bit more, though. Yeah, um, on LaMelo, I mean, the range looks more improved. Dude, he is pulling from even deeper. Mm-hmm. He is knocking down his catch-and-shoot attempts. Let me ask you this. Also, I, on LaMelo too, dude, mid-range game has improved. He's more slithery around the rim. I'm just impressed with LaMelo's game yeah. as a whole even more this season. I want to ask you, so on that, like I completely agree that LaMelo is his best team, this team's best creator. He's their best offensive engine straight up. Like, would you move off of any of these guys for a better off-ball shooter? Like, I just think it, yes, it's a bit of a machine right now. Mm-hmm. And because of that, I probably would hold on to these assets and let the machine keep working, even though I think if LaMelo had the ball in his hands every possession, you're getting this team's best offense. Like, what do you think about that? Would you move off of any of these assets to let LaMelo have the reins a little bit more? I don't think so. I think that the guy who challenges him most as sort of lead ball handler for this team is Gordon Hayward. But I think that... He brings you a lot of good stuff. He brings you versatility offensively and the different ways that he can score. He's another really good decision maker and ball mover who I think helps this whole machine go. And then other than that, they have shooting. They have the good role man in Plumlee. They've got a lot, man. They've got a lot of tools for really, really good offense. And you got P.J. Washington coming off your bench. That's not too shabby. You got Oubre coming off your bench. That's not too shabby. We haven't even seen James Booknight yet, who I think... Maybe not this year in a significant way, but down the line is going to be an electrifying score for this team. And I still think could probably get on the floor for this team. I don't know. They're playing Martin out there, which I get because he's going to bring you some of that effort, some of that veteran toughness fight on the glass. I mean, he had 10 and 8 against the Cavs because that's just what he does. He just finds a way. But book night would be more fun. Okay. The one note I have to make about this Hornets team, shocking amount of Ish Smith through two games. Like Ish Smith is playing a ton. He is facilitating the offense and stretches. And I'm like, look, when you have LaMelo and Gordon Hayward, just stagger their minutes so one of them is always running the show. We don't need all this Ish Smith. Like, he's okay. He's obviously super quick. But, and that fits into their identity as this team that likes to push and run. But other than that, dude, I don't love how much Ish Smith we're seeing. If you're not going to say it, I will. Ish Smith kind of sucks. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I got to say, the facilitating is valuable. Again, the ability to push is valuable. But 
it's just probably not worth giving him the volume of touches. I did think he was good in their first game, and then he still passed it pretty well in their second game, but it's been a lot. I don't know. I just, I don't know where, like, I thought he actually kind of slowed the the Hornets down a little bit in stretches. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know, man. I He's a small ball handler. They're, they don't fear him from the perimeter and putting up any mid-range shots. I mean, I guess for a guy who's going to be like your 10th, 11th guy, he's not horrible, but yeah. Get Ish out of there. Give Booknight the minutes. Uh, yeah, I need I need less Ish Smith as this season goes along, bro. He's kind of the he he stuck out as a sore thumb as the weak yeah. link uh, in this rotation for sure during these first few games. Yeah, and you talk about tenth, eleventh man, then he's pretty damn good. But he's playing nineteen and a half minutes a game, and again is actually commanding the offense and stretches, and he's very confident and he's willing to kind of do what he wants. And I don't know if you need that, so he's fine but I think probably has played too significant of a role. Hornets look really good overall, though. I'm super confident that they're going to be at the least a play-in team. Very well could be a playoff team. Like, they are, you know, they're not insanely deep, but they're deep with really good players, and that their top seven is nuts. Like, if P.J. Washington is your seventh best guy, you're doing pretty well as a team. So, I like what we've seen from them. My fourth takeaway is going to come from a game that I was actually at on Thursday, and that was Warriors-Clippers. And I think that the Warriors continue to impress, and we have all sort of given sufficient praise for how well they're moving the ball, just how many more good decision-makers they have now, how much easier offense is coming to them, all these things. And I think that they're clearly going to win in the 50s game-wise. I think that they're going to be a top-five team out west unequivocally. I will, though, focus on some areas in which I think that they are in need of improvement just a little bit because, again, we don't need to be excessive in our praise without also looking at, hey, where can they improve going forward? The first thing that has stood out to me through two games is that they just need to be more careful with the ball. Like, this has been not a downfall of Warriors teams, but always an annoyance. You know, they've been so overwhelmingly talented, so good when they were in their dynasty days that it didn't matter. But they have 38 turnovers through two games. And they had 21 against the Clippers, and it very nearly cost them. And it's just a lot of dumb mistakes. It's just guys being lazy with their passes. It's guys going up into the air without a plan. All these things. And I love the beauty of the free-flowing offense, of the constant ball movement, of you know trusting a lot of guys to make decisions. That is ultimately, obviously, a net positive for your offense. But the downside of that can be... If you are free-flowing like this, if you do have this many guys touching the ball and making decisions, well, then sometimes it can lead to just that sort of recklessness and those mistakes. So that's something that they need to improve upon. And then I just look at some of the stuff with the bench unit, because I think that their bench is clearly improved. But I think that, number one, Jordan Poole, who is starting, but also is kind of the captain of the bench unit because they try to have either him or Steph out there as much as possible because if they don't, it's disastrous. He just needs to really find himself a little bit more right now. Like, I thought that he was able to have success in that first game against the Lakers. He finished with 18, but it was kind of a chaotic game. You know, he took some bad shots, he had some out-of-control possessions, and then he made some big-time deep threes, and it was like, okay, now we're cooking with gas. He's not lacking for confidence, but... He is lacking a little bit for comfort, it seems to me. He was 4-14 against the Clippers. He had seven turnovers. Really shockingly sloppy with the handle for a guy who I think has a pretty creative handle. Like, just 
not being tight enough there. And then he's forcing some shots. He's taking some bad possessions. So the bench unit, when it doesn't run through him, it's not great because somebody else is going to step up to, you know, try to be that big time shot maker. We saw a couple Damian Lee possessions where, hey, he's played well through two games, but I continue to just think he's kind of a solid, fine guy. I think that Poole needs to step up in a big way, needs to be unequivocally the captain of that bench unit, but needs to also strike the balance to where he's not forcing shots. I think maybe it's attacking the bucket more instead of of settling. He just needs to really clean up his game right now, and I think that he will, and I think that he'll be fine. And then the other thing with this bench unit is that there's too many extreme small ball minutes where it's not even Draymond at the five, where it's like Iggy, who I guess is playing the five, or Otto Porter Jr. And I just think what we saw against the Clippers is a shocking lack of rim protection in those minutes. Because even when you're playing Looney at the five, you know, he's 6'9", he's not some great vertical athlete. Like, he's more of a good positional defender than he is some sort of imposing rim protector. But in the non-Looney minutes... It's just like a lot of clean paints, especially against a team like the Clippers where the floor is so spaced out where you can't really help off of shooters. And dude, at the end of the day, you can't play Otto Porter Jr. at center. So I think that the intuitive solution there is give me more Bielitsa at the five. He's not some crazy defensive center, sure, but he's a big presence. And by the way, he's better offensively than these other guys too, as we saw in the first game and as we saw in this game. He's going to move well without the ball. He's going to make good decisions with it. He's going to knock down shots from the perimeter. He's going to cut to the bucket. So those are kind of my three things that I took away from that game. Got to make sure you don't leak into recklessness just because you're playing this free-flowing style. Poole has the burden with the second unit, but needs to be more reliable there. Play really just more in control. The confidence is there, but play in control. Play at your own pace. And then... I think we need more Bielitz at the five because they were just getting exploited in some of those extreme small ball minutes. You know, you can play a six foot five center when it's Draymond Green stretches, but not many guys can do that. Yeah, I watched the like fourth quarter of this game because uh, I was watching on the TNT overtime cams. Oh my God, that was horrendous. One of the worst <laughs> viewing basketball experiences I've ever had. There was no commentary. I'm just like following Paul George as he. You know, meanders <laughs> around the court. Not a good time. But, you know, <laughs> I, I caught a little bit about this. I, so I, I just want to ask, why weren't they running Bielitsa, bro? What is the – I thought that was kind of the obvious play after the first game. You and me both, Buster Brown. And I played 16 minutes, but it, it was just like he played another really good game. He gave you, I think it was 6-6 six and six in those minutes – could have easily been 4-4 four of four from the field, like his two misses came on one possession where he had a great move, got a good look at the rim, got a guy jumping, and then missed it and then missed the tip in. And like that was kind of the only blemish on his statistical resume on the day. So I think that that is the clear option. And uh, it's been a lot of Damian Lee again. And I sort of said before the season, hey, I don't know if we need all that. But if he's going to play well, you can justify it. He's confident. He's going to play hard. There was one possession where I was like okay this confidence has leaked into recklessness this is not your shot to take like he just had kind of a wild drive to the rim and that's where it's like pool this has to be your moment because sometimes Jordan is just like kind of swinging the ball along the perimeter with the bench unit and it's like hey you know let's run our normal offense and it's just I don't know if that works nearly as well without Steph and the starting level guys out there on the floor so those are my takeaways 
Did you take anything away from the Clippers' offense? Because, I mean, they were flowing yes. just as easily as the Warriors' offense was. Yes. Paul George is going to have an unbelievable season. Unbelievable. Expect more from me on that topic soon at some point over the next few days. Wink, wink. But, dude, it's just like heaven for him. I mean, there's so much space to work with. There are so many clean paints. People can't double him, although the Warriors actually did start doubling him for a stretch in this game, but it's really hard to do because of all the shooting that exists on this roster. And then I thought, the greatest beneficiary of this all? Eric Bledsoe, man. Like, I'm starting to wonder if he's going to have a much better year than anticipated because I'm thinking every single time, hey, it's Eric Bledsoe, you know, let him shoot the three. Like, he's a guy who's going to shoot in the low 30s and that's generally just not that great of offense, but he's confident enough shooting it to where Warriors guys are closing out on him hard like he's any other shooter, and he was only one of four from deep in this game, but that allows him to attack closeouts, and he was just getting to the bucket, dude. I mean, 10 of 16 from the field in this game, 9 of 12 inside the arc, had some really nice tough finishes, but also it's just because the Warriors don't have that crazy lead guard defensively and because they don't have that rim protector and because, again, you can't help off of shooters for the Clippers because they've got probably three or four alongside Bledsoe at all times, he just got a lot of good one-on-one matchups and he was kind of just bullying dudes. So my thought has been, and I said this, why do you need a guy who's going to hurt your spacing? But if people are going to stick to Bledsoe as if he is a shooter then he's not really hurting your spacing. I mean, a little bit, sure, because he's not going to make as many of the shots, but he is then a valuable penetrator and creator for this team that otherwise is going to rely a whole lot on Reggie Jackson and is basically just going to be the PG show without other options. So Bledsoe, to me, was most impressive. I thought PG was outstanding as well. I think he's going to put up like 27-7. and I think he'll be a second-team All-NBA guy this year. And I think the Clippers are definitely going to be a playoff team because, you know... Ultimately, what this game comes down to is they just went cold from three in a stretch. And I think that they ended up shooting like 34% from deep, if I'm not mistaken. And that's the difference in a two-point game. And they're always going to be relying on that. They were 35% from deep. But if they make one more of those, then obviously the result has flipped. And I thought that that was kind of the determination. It's just they went a little bit cold in the second half in this one. But yeah, the shooting is still obviously impressive. Zubats is still a really tough matchup for a lot of defenses, especially those constituted like the Warriors. He shot 10 free throws in 17 minutes because they just don't have an answer for him on the interior. So the Clippers are going to be good, but my takeaway, probably the biggest one was, again, what Bledsoe did, just how much space there is here. And I will shout out Terrence Mann, dude. He gave you 11-8-3. and three. I thought that a nice job defending in this one stepped up and took on Steph and stretches, and just ultimate Swiss Army knife, Logan. But we know that. We know all about Terrence Mann. Took the words out of my mouth. I was literally going to go, yeah, he's a nice Swiss Army knife. Mm-hmm. He stole my bar. We're going to go from uh, from one game with a Curry brother to another team with a Curry brother. And you know what, Carson? My next takeaway, I wasn't wrong about the 76ers, all right? Now, look. I think I may have been a little overzealous with my finals call, but I'm not wrong about how much better they are without Ben Simmons. Like, I, there is so much more space. There is so much more room for Embiid to do his thing. He was dominating Blake. Like, and yeah, I mean, that's kind of expected against smaller big men, but 
The shot is still there. He is knocking down those elbow middies, the shots from the perimeter. He is drawing so much attention when he draws to the rack. Embiid is going to be in the MVP conversation once more. And I mean, the biggest thing to me is there's so much more space for Tobias Harris to work. Dude, Tobias produced at a damn near all-star level last season. I believe he was me and yours, like, last guy off of our Mm -hmm. East All-Star ballots last season. And it felt like with the attention of Embiid and Simmons, he was kind of just shunned to the side. Like, everybody just kind of forgot about Toby. Don't. Like, this guy is a bucket. He's allowed to create more in the half court. Um, There's so much more space for him to get to his pull-ups and his mid-range jumpers. He's allowed to push in transition more. And that's another thing. You know, Carson, we all praise Ben Simmons for how good he is in transition and such. But there's a lot of guys who are really good here in transition. There's more room for Seth to get out on the break. There's more room for Danny Green to get on the break and knock down some pull-up threes. Like, I just think they're so much better off without Ben. There's more room for Seth to run the pick and roll in the half court. And he's good. And, you know... Andre Drummond off the bench, there's no Simmons clogging it up for him. He was creating in the mid-range a little bit. And I was right about Andre. Did you see that behind-the-back pass, Carson? Did did. you see that behind-the-back pass? That was was sick, wasn't it? That was pretty cool. Yeah, that was, because Andre's a beast. We're running point Andre Drummond off the bench for Philly this year. Now, look, I want to contextualize all this. I think the Sixers' offense is better as a whole without Ben Simmons, and I think they'll be better in the playoffs when it comes time. The thing I was not right about and the thing that you that that the Nets game proved a point of is that late in games, the Sixers aren't going to be able to close guys out. And I thought they bungled a few of the calls. I thought Embiid didn't foul Harden. Or, excuse me, I didn't think he fouled Aldridge um, late in the game. I didn't think. Uh, on the and one? Not on the and one. On the, um, like, when he was just trying, like, I didn't think they needed to foul in that situation with, like, 24 seconds left. Um, they were, you know, they would only had like three seconds left, but I didn't think uh, Embiid fouled in there. I thought there was another play. I thought I'm that was an intentional on. foul. Yeah, I know, but I don't think Embiid intentionally mm-hmm. wanted to foul him. I thought there was another call that they kind of bungled. Regardless, the charge. Yeah, or the what they call the block, but could have been uh-huh. a charge. Danny Green. Yeah. Um, I thought. So I thought they messed those calls up, but I think it did reinforce something that you said, and that's, again, late in games. They don't have enough creation to put teams away. They go to a Seth Curry pick-and-roll. Dude literally loses the ball. They send Seth to the line, and he misses a free throw. That's really uncharacteristic. But late in games, tough buckets are going to come at a premium, and your best perimeter creator is probably Tobias Harris. You know, And, and you know what I mean. Like Seth is probably your best perimeter shooter, but... Toby is going to be able to get to his spots a lot easier because of his size, because of the mismatches. But I think they're better off with Simmons, and that's what I wasn't wrong on. I think this offense is still going to be great. I think defensively, we've seen some regression. Like, don't get me wrong, like, they're sorely missing Ben out there. There were a lot of rotations that Ben would have made in this game that Seth was laid on, that Danny Green was laid on. But they're better off without Ben. And look, again, I'm not saying they're a finals contender. I'm not saying they're going to be dominant in the playoffs because I think there are a lot of offensive issues here that we are going to continually see late in games. But they're better off with Ben Simmons, and I think we proved that. Also, Ben's not mentally ready to play yet. More like you're afraid of the Philadelphia crowd. They're going to boo you off the floor. Yeah. I hate him. I hate him so much. Like, Carson, I kind of want to call him the B word. I'm not going to do that because... You know, because I'm a, 
I'm a professional gentleman, but he's soft. Ben Simmons is soft. Yeah. Well, he's made his decision. I think that's pretty clear. And I honestly love what Daryl Morey has been saying about the situation. I love Daryl Morey, dude. Like, think whatever you want about his approach to building a team and his philosophy on basketball or whatever, but that dude is just a pretty straight-up guy. And he's been talking about how this may be an ongoing issue for four years because they're not going to settle for less than optimum value for uh, you know to put alongside a guy like Embiid when he's in his prime. Now, I think that that's also just a leverage play because then it's like hey we're not desperate you know we're not going to take less than is ideal I don't know that they would really go for years like this that would be pretty extreme but I thought that was smart and I also thought it was just kind of cool I just love how the entire Sixers organization is talking about yeah nobody really likes Ben Simmons except for Tobias Harris I think he said something in support recently but I'm enjoying that dynamic it's pretty funny look I think that the Sixers are similarly good to what they would be with Ben Simmons What I am so glad that you left for me to talk about is my favorite thing about this entire team, and that is Tyrese Maxey, dude. Like, if you are unfamiliar, big Tyrese Maxey guy here. I said that I thought he was the most developed scoring prospect in last year's draft. Do I regret that? I don't know. He's not going to be as good as Anthony Edwards, but dude, he just has the bag, and now he has the opportunity, and now he has the confidence, and he has been outstanding. He's giving them 17 and a half a game and is never going to be, or at least not this early in his career, probably a volume nuts three-point shooter, but he's three of eight from deep thus far. And if he can just hit 35, 36% of his attempts from there, really valuable player. And he's stepping up as like an alpha creator for this group, which I think they need. I think he has the tools to be an absolutely better creator than a guy like Seth Curry. And I am just loving it. I'm loving what we've seen from Maxi, and if he continues on this trajectory, maybe he's not going to be the kind of lead ball handler that late game can control things for them this year, but down the line, that was my hope. My hope was, hey, they found their closer here. They found their tough bucket getter, their perimeter initiator, and this game has kind of affirmed that hope for me. So there are still things I don't love about this team. I don't love the bench. I think it's very eh. I don't think that they have like overwhelming shooting and dude Philly fans are so funny bro they start booing Danny Green in that game like so so relentlessly they just don't care and I love it because they care so much about their teams that they don't really have that respect for the players necessarily individually it's brutal but it is entertaining I think that the Sixers are really good I think they're gonna win 50 games do I think that they're all that much better than that not necessarily I think that defensively they actually were pretty good in this game I thought that they had a couple of nice possessions down the stretch and they kind of really just fell apart offensively like they had 18 points in the fourth quarter and that was clearly the difference here but they didn't make it easy on the Nets so I, I was moderately impressed and they controlled most of this game and they probably should have won this game against the Nets and then they'd be 2-0. and So yeah, I think that the Sixers are good. Can I give you a couple Nets takeaways from this game or do you have more to add about Philly? This guy's going to talk about LaMarcus Aldridge. Of course I am, dude. How can you not? I really like LaMarcus's fit here. And look, man, the Nets just make people look good, okay? I was like, eh, Blake Griffin last year, really, what's he going to do? And then he found a way to be productive in a role and to give effort and space the floor and do kind of multiple things for them. And then LaMarcus, I was like, yeah, skilled offensively, sure, but is he going to demand post-touches? Defensively, it's going to be an issue. And he has just found a way to fit 
offensively. Like, he's probably not going to shoot as well for mid-range as he did in this one where he's 10 of 11 inside the arc, but he is able to operate within the flow of this offense. Like, sure, anybody can kind of sit in the dunker spot. There are better options than him. There are more dynamic athletes, but he's willing to do that in stretches. He's willing to be the guy who people dump it off to. He's willing to roll to the rim hard. He is willing to cut. He is very willing to space the floor as that sort of stop and pop guy and do a lot for mid-range there. And I just think he's a super talented offensive player. And that makes him valuable here. Because guess what? Other than that, I mean, they're playing 23 minutes of Javon Carter. They're playing 17 minutes of Paul Millsap. So, like, if you can give me 20 minutes of LaMarcus Aldridge and he will try defensively, he's not going to be great there, but he will try, I am going to enjoy that and appreciate that from him. So, yes, Logan, that is a takeaway for me. And another thing about the Nets in this game, our friend Carvel Teft, third member of NerdSesh, go check out some of his writing on NerdSesh.com. Check out his video on the Warriors that he did last week. He bet the Nets live at the money line when they were down eight with like four minutes left. And he, I think, put down $20 and won 220 So how about that? That was a big time win from the Nets, dude. Because if they had lost, it wouldn't have really mattered all that much. But the perception would have been, oh, look at them. They're spiraling. And they came up pretty clutch in this one. Played some good defense in those last few minutes and found a way to manufacture the offense. And came through for Carvel. Dude, what a bet. Yeah, seriously. That's just instinct thought- right there. Man, dude, I'm telling you, when I was watching that game, man, I was talking to my dad. I was like, dude, I'm going to I'm gonna lambast Carson for crapping on me the way he did about the Sixers. And then, of course, the Philly, the Philadelphia 76ers did a real Philly thing mm-hmm. and bungled it all up for me. I, I was so disappointed. I just, wanted to, I just wanted to gloat. You know, is that too much to ask for one time on the podcast? Well, you actually did start to gloat. Here are some texts from you. Nets suck. My takeaway. Carson shit on my preseason takes too much. This was with about three to four minutes left in that game. And then it didn't turn out so well for it. For you. (laughs) Did it? No, it did not. All right. So now we are on to my fifth takeaway. And I'm just going to shout out a few more rookies here. Because this class is as advertised, man. I mean, we haven't even seen Cade yet. Jalen Green hasn't been all that great. But I already talked about Scotty Barnes, how good he was. Three guys I want to shout out here. Number one, Chris Duarte, dude, for the Pacers. Immediately starting, immediately balling out, putting up 21 a game, 9 of 17 from deep. Just the kind of versatile option that we expected him to be. Veteran presence, but man, dude, outstanding shooter off the catch, impressive off the bounce. Like, he's got a little bit of that step back. He's got nice pace. He's got a pretty nice in-between game. He had five assists in this last game. Just a smart do-it-all guy, like we expected. Like, he was supposed to be super pro-ready. He was supposed to be versatile and immediately impactful on offense. But seeing it, pretty impressive. Another guy who falls into that later lottery category and has been impressive, and Logan, I know that you will have plenty of thoughts on him, Davion Mitchell, man. Has not been good offensively. I believe is like 2 of 14 through two games. But dude, immediately the defense from Davion is just like next level, bro. I know that he's getting a bunch of credit for it already as he should. And he has the sickest nickname in basketball. Off day is the best or off night is the best nickname in basketball. But like, I know that he's 23. I don't know when I saw a rookie guard especially at this size who was this nuts defensively dude like it is the constant motor it is just the competitive instincts 
He is insane mirroring movements, dude. It's just like he is so light on his feet and he is so perceptive and reactive. And it's the second you go one way, he is right there with you. Feet, insane. And like, if you just look at his defensive production, first game, he held opposing players when he was the primary defender to six of 19 shooting. Second game has four steals. And he is stepping up for the majority of contests against Dame, who was 8 of 24, and then Donovan Mitchell, who was 9 of 25 with five turnovers. He stripped Gobert twice. Like, he's just fearless, dude. He is just fearless. He is a dog, and that is a guy who I want on my basketball team every single day of the week. Every day of the week. Like, he's going to be in the all-defense conversation. As a rookie, bro, he is that insane. And once he finds the offense, it's just a matter of shots falling. He's going to do it. I think he's going to be a Rookie of the Year candidate, as I said, and then one other guy who was actually my runner-up uh, for, or I should say was tied for my third Rookie of the Year candidate and my favorite prospect who I've ever evaluated, Evan Mobley, dude. So impressive. Giving you 15-7-4 on 55% shooting, but like just really looks comfortable. I mean, the jump shot looks good. The playmaking is immediately so impressive, dude. So impressive, like such a defining aspect of his game. Defensively, he's making plays, he's blocking shots, he's getting his hands involved. I have just been like, man, maybe he has a better case for Rookie of the Year than I expected. Because I thought Cade and Jalen Green would be so productive offensively that they would kind of overpower what Mobley can do. But he is going to play his role very well. I actually think, I've said, you know... Maybe he should be a four for his first couple years, but I think long-term he's a five. No matter what right now, I think he probably does look best at the four. Like, he can be a great help side rim protector, but I also think he's perfectly fine playing on the perimeter offensively. Maybe he'd be even better at center. I don't know. Maybe even more space would help him. But, like, the jump shot, the facilitating, the defense, it's all looked very good. That dude is nuts. He is going to be an all-NBA player and a superstar in this league. And this rookie class is just insane. Yeah, and I mean... Mobley's a really good, like, not just playmate, he's just a really good decision maker in moving the ball. Um, yeah, I was super impressed with Mobley as well. I thought pushing the pace in transition as a rim runner, uh, hitting the glass. I was just impressed with all facets, especially with the weird, just the weird basketball conundrum that is Cleveland. Running market in at the three. Uh, man, that's just... The Cavs are weird, but I was definitely impressed with Mobley. I liked your nickname for Davion Moore, man. Off days, way cooler. Should we should uh we should run that through the league execs? Well, that's not um, my nickname. That's his nickname. Is it off night or off day? Oh no, it's off night. You yeah. like off day more because he's Davion. That's so much better. Oh, and he's ruining their entire day. You're an astute gentleman, I'm Carson. A smart you know guy. that. Um, dude, people should have listened to Nurtesh. Yeah. That's what we've been saying, dude. We knew Davion was going to be a beast defensively. I love the kid. And look, bro, I said it. If the Kings can just be average defensively, it takes them up a whole nother lot, uh, notch. I said that if we just instill this defensive culture with Tristan and Davion, that we could be a, maybe a playoff contender. Offense is still going to come easy for this Kings team. Rashawn Holmes and his floater game. Harrison Barnes being elite knockdown off the catch. He was nasty in their first game. Mm -hmm. um, Fox commanding so much attention in the lane. I don't mean to go off on a Kings tangent here for your rookie take. Do it. But the Kings are going to be filthy um, if they can just be average defensively. And then Duarte. Shout out, dude. 
had to start in spot for um, who did he start in spot for? Uh, was it TJ? Well, TJ's going to be out for a while. Yeah, I don't know if I would even call it in spot. I mean, I think he's their starter for now. Yeah, um, but Duarte looks solid again. Just like I hate saying this again, but Swiss Army knife, dude, just do it all. Can play make a little bit. Can get to the rack. Can get in the lane. Knocks down open shots. And Duarte's 24, I think. So Davion and Duarte, not your typical yeah. rookies. Um, the pro ready. This is what you should expect, though. And like again, man, people want to talk about you know the the young appealing prospects. I'm not saying you should go away from them, but there is value in getting these pro ready guys who are ready to play minutes mm-hmm. because they can do everything, and especially defensively. A lot of rookies are not ready to play a defensive heavy role, and Duarte and Davion certainly are and do it all, but mostly defensive roles. So, yeah, all those guys you laid out, I have been exceptionally impressed with. Mobley, though, to me, is the most surprising. I thought with Sexton and Garland, he might be a little overshadowed, but he is still getting some touches. Mm-hmm. He's making good decisions, and he's making the most of his opportunities. I would love if Jared Allen would not be there so we could have even more, <laughs> but uh, but I digress. It has been, uh, it's been a really impressive showing from those three guys. Well, if Jared Allen wasn't there, we wouldn't have gotten to see him murder Mason Plumley live, which was a shocking moment for me, really. I mean, I almost passed out. I really almost went fully unconscious. All right. We've each got one takeaway left, Logan. Give it to me. What do you got? Mo Bamba and Cam Reddish are fooling us again. That's that's my final take. No. Um, no. It's not, it's, they're not fooling us, Logan. <laughs> two of Carson's favorite basketball players to talk about. Two of your guys. Um, I believe preseason Carson said 50% of his eggs were in the Mo Bamba basket. Um, and for good reason, though, man, Mo has been exceptional. He's putting up 16.5, uh, 7.5, and 2.5 on 71, 67, 75 splits here through two games. And I, it's just, I want to believe it's real. I want to believe that my eyes are not fooling me again and that Mo can do this consistently. Mo, I believe in a little more in Cam just because... Um, he just brings value as a uh, as a defensive presence, point blank. I you know I question his offensive game a little more, but he's taking mismatches in the post better. Um, he's got active hands. He's great on jumping in front of inlet low block passes. He's a he's a great rim protector. Just long arms can jump out of the building. Tremendous rebounder. Those things I don't have a question about. You have to be impressed with the jump shooting though. I mean, he is mm-hmm. knocking down everything he takes from the perimeter. He's supreme off the catch. And guys, for one. Guys aren't closing out on them because they're like, oh, it's Mo, we'll let him shoot. But two, um, he's just, like, he's not hesitating at all, man. He's also, he can shoot over those guys as well. Like, it doesn't even matter if you do close out. Mo's long arms, he's going to put that up uh, in your mouth. But he has been great off of the catch. If that continues, Mo's perfect. And I also think Mo's versatile enough where you can play him with another big. You know, like, they're running him with Wendell Carter. Mm -hmm. And Mo's making good decisions, dumping it off to him in the post, moving the rock around the perimeter. So Mo has really impressed me. I want to put. I might want to put a few of my uh, eggs yeah. in the Mo Bamba basket. As for Cam, Cam's tough. He's balled out in the preseason, and I wanted to believe it. First game, he puts up twenty three and one on forty seven seventy five one hundred. He shot seven of fifteen from the field, three of four from deep. And the one thing that I do think is consistent is him in the lane. He is slithery down there with the Euros, with the craftiness under the basket. That is all an impressive. But he was knocking down shots off the catch. Like I said, three or four from deep. 
And the determinant's always been the shot. I mean, we have said this about Cam in the past. If he's knocking down his shots at a over 35% clip, he's a valuable guy that you can play in your rotation because he does other things at a high level. He's a decent defender. He's a decent playmaker. He's decent out of the pick and roll and can get buckets in the lane. But it's just, is he going to knock down his shots? And, you know, I mean, mechanically, I still may have my questions about his jumper, but he was knocking them down. So, I mean... It's just tough because we've seen Cam do this before. We've seen Cam fool us before. I want to believe, Carson. I really want to believe that that this is what these two guys can do down the line. Are they fooling us again? Or are you are you drifting back into, into being big-time believers in these guys? All right. So I almost feel like they fall into separate categories because I think that Cam has – a clearer path to being like a really, really good NBA player because defensively, he's already shown us the impact he can have. Offensively, he is a smooth operator when he's going. It is just about the shot. Like you said, it doesn't make any sense that Cam Reddish shot 26% from three last year, that he was 33% as a rookie, that he was like 32% at Duke. Like he's got a good looking shot. He's confident. He can do a little bit off the bounce. I'm going to be in on Cam Reddish until the day that I die, okay? That is the hill that I am willing to die on because if that shot is 36 37%, he is really good. And last year, I said in my video about the Hawks, I thought him getting hurt, sadly, actually helped their overall success as a team because they were playing a dude 29 minutes a game who couldn't hit a shot and who was hurting their overall offense because of it. But if he's going to shoot the ball well, dude, I'm all in. And we saw what he could do in the playoffs last year in that one crazy 20-something point performance he had. The decision-making has to be better. Uh, the shot selection long-term has to be better. And the consistency of the shot has to be better. But if it is, I love it. And I think that Cam is... I think he's going to find a way to be okay. I don't think he's ever going to be a star, but I think he has enough tools to find a way to be okay. When it comes to Mo Bamba, Mo Bamba, who I actually wrote about in my piece that is on nerdsesh.com, the most interesting thing about every rebuilding NBA team, go ahead, check that out. I'm going to shamelessly plug the website because you know what? It's something new that we started. We're very excited about it. And you can get even more Nerdsesh content there, written stuff. So why wouldn't you want to do that? I wrote about young Mo. And here's the thing with Mr. Bamba. You could say maybe he's fooling us, sure. But this is a progression. We saw it towards the end of last year when he started to play. Hey, whoa, hey, wait a second there the shot has really, really come along. And the rim protection maybe wasn't outstanding, but the pure shot blocking was outstanding. And he was putting the ball on the floor a little bit. And then he came out and went nuts in preseason and was blocking four shots a game and hitting 40% of his threes. And it's like, okay, small sample size, sure, but worth being excited about. And then in this game against the Spurs to open things up, had 18 points, four blocks, four assists, and yes, he is a superstar and he may win MVP this year. I think that Mo is going to be okay. Like, I don't think he's ever going to be a really good NBA player. But what I mean when I say I'm all in on him is that through three years, through two and a half years, this was a guy who had been the sixth overall pick in the draft and who everybody had given up on. He was supposed to be this prodigious defensive talent. He couldn't even really defend at a high level offensively. You know, his skill was limited. He had the flashes of the shot, but it was inconsistent. And now I think we're at the point where he is going to shoot the ball consistently. I think that that is a legitimate weapon for him. I think he's going to be in the mid-30s from deep on pretty good volume because he's confident taking those shots. 
Defensively, I wish that he was a little bit bigger and stronger, but he is so long. Like, he has the longest wingspan in NBA history and so instinctive as a shot blocker that he can just make up for mistakes there. Like, we saw it a couple of times. He switched out onto the perimeter out of the pick and roll, and what does he do? He gets beat off the dribble, and he makes up for that with just an incredible blocked shot. So, that's not the formula to be a truly great defender, but it's a good enough formula to be a competent defender. I thought he had good possessions dropping out of the pick and roll. I thought he had good possessions switching. I thought he made good decisions as a passer, like a couple of really nice finds in that first game. And also, they ran a couple DHOs through him. Like, I think he's a real player. I think he is a borderline starting level center in this league. I think he is going to be an entertaining center because he's athletic, he's nuts blocking shots, he can space the floor, and it's just about the consistency. And if he shows more of the passing, putting the ball on the floor, you know, maybe he's even better than that. Maybe he's just a legitimate starting center and, again, not going to be a star-level guy, but a kind of guy who you're willing to pay $12 million a year. I think he could get there, and I don't think anybody would have said that he could get there a year, a year and a half ago. So, yes, I like it. I like it a lot, dude. Talent... Talent. Oh, what a concept, right? Because these guys are just talented. Like, that's why we keep wanting to come back to them, is they have these tools. Yes, I think that they will both find a way. I don't think we are being fooled right now. Cam, maybe, because he always has these up-and-down performances. I'm just, I'm going to be a a no-comment on Cam Reddish here. That's my final answer. But Mo Bomb, I think, has consistently progressed and is now a different player than he had been at any other point in his NBA career. That's my take. Are you buying back Mobamba stock? I know you sold some of it. Buying it back? Brother, I've got the most on the market. <laughs> I was tweeting about this back in April. I was like, yeah, give me give me some of that Mobamba stock back. How many eggs? I know, I like I want to get a, a specific number. You dude, you move some of your eggs out of the basket to Nikola Jokic. How many eggs do I have? A dozen? Yeah, sure. Baker's dozen. We'll go 13. That's weird. That makes it harder. Give me 6 to Mobamba. Where are the other seven? <laughs> Dude, we went over this last time. Nikola Jokic, Jamal Murray, and various other players, okay? Look, I've got a lot of split eggs. It's like I'm splitting scholarships for a college baseball team. But Mo is a full scholarship guy, okay? And he's the star of my team. Do you think you think his ceiling is a borderline starter? Like, you don't think there's a higher... No, no, no. I think his ceiling is better than that. I think his ceiling is could be an above-average starter. I don't see how he becomes a star, but I think that offensively, like dudes who can space the floor and are athletic are great. I just wish he was a little bit more physical overall because he doesn't he doesn't overpower people ever on either end. And I still think that really good centers, great centers, are going to make minced meat out of him. And then I don't know if he is going to be, you know, consistent enough challenging the great rim protectors offensively. Like, he's maybe a little too reliant on the jump shot. But that's okay, because the jump shot looks good. And defensively, it's weird, because I I wouldn't say he's insanely mobile. Like, he doesn't have great feet, but they're good enough to where he's athletic enough and long enough and good enough, again, blocking shots to where he can be fine switching out onto the perimeter and find some success there. So... I am in on Mo Bamba. Who I am not in on is the Orlando Magic because they suck and they are in a tier with the Thunder, clearly, as just like way worse than the rest of the league. Everybody else is going to find a way to be competitive. 
Those two teams have gotten blown out by like 25 in both of their first two games, and I think that's going to be the story of the year. It's just like the offense, dude, doesn't exist. Does not exist. And that was kind of predictable. Like, these were pretty clearly the two worst rosters in the NBA. I thought. You didn't. You did, You had the Magic winning more games than the Pistons. But, yeah, they're going to struggle. I don't think either of them win 20 games. Dude, I'm going to cry, bro. I, I'm so disappointed. Like, not that, like, I had faith in the Magic or anything, but they stink so bad. Yeah. Bro, how many points? They got, they got housed. Like, dude, there were so many stretches where there was just no... The Knicks ran them. Yeah. The Knicks absolutely ran them. And I think the thing that was the most heartbreaking was... was Suggs. Like, there's he's just got a long way to go. Like, mm-hmm. he's just... He has got a long way to go before he's... Again, I, I said these things. I think he's going to be inefficient. I think there's going to be a transition period. And I think that his ceiling this season is probably like 14... Six and three, or fourteen, six and four. Mm-hmm. I'm just disappointed. I just wanted, I wanted a little more, and they are definitely. I completely agree. I overrated them. The Pistons are going to be better. Yeah. So I guess yeah. My, my shocking takeaway, my big take. Yeah. <laughs> Magic. The Magic suck. The Magic suck big time. Yeah. Not great. All right. So my last takeaway here, Logan. I mean, first of all, I'm shocked because we haven't talked about the Miami Heat yet, and they beat the Milwaukee Bucks by. 40. I don't have a full on takeaway for them, but what I will say, Logan, is I know that you have some strong heat takes. And I'll just briefly say that the tenacity, the aggression with which they played, the defensive intensity was outstanding. And getting out in transition and just, dude, they just dominated. They dominated this game throughout. They have versatile offensive weapons. Tyler Hero has arrived, man. We could have told you that based on what we saw from him in preseason, and he's just really impressive. He's going to be maybe the best sixth man in basketball. He looked better than Jordan Poole in the game where he had 27 to open the season against the Bucks again. So Heat are going to be really good. Do you have anything on that before I give my planned final takeaway? Oh, so that's not your the Heat is not your final takeaway? I'm confused. Well, it was an audible because I assumed you were going to talk about them, but then I was like, well, we need to talk about the Heat. I mean, I'm going to bite my tongue on uh, on mm-hmm. all Miami Heat uh, thoughts because, you know, wink, it. wink, nod, nod. Um, I love it. Nerd sesh YouTube moment, wink. Um, I love it. Yeah. No, I have some – I mean, I said they were going to go to the NBA Finals uh, in preseason. So, you know, yeah, I do have some big Heat takes, but uh, I'll, I'll let the nerd sesh uh, community wait on those. So stay tuned for that. I think the Heat are a top three team in the East. I mean, I like them more than the Sixers, no doubt. Uh, <laughs> Logan's casting a spell on me there. Yeah, I thought, honestly, preseason that they were firmly in that same tier as the Sixers, and I think that they are going to be, and I think that they're probably going to be better. I mean, they're just there's a lot of shooting here. There's a lot of defense. There's a lot of toughness. There's multiple creators. Uh, they're well-coached. They're experienced. Here are going to be really, really good. I guess I'll just briefly give a couple of little mini takeaways here, nothing that is all that uh, deep. But actually, my one will be about the depth of the Washington Wizards because it's just outstanding, dude. And <laughs> Logan, why are you slumped in your chair there? Logan, is, is he going to walk out? Look, the Wizards are 2-0 right now. I, personally, I don't think they're going to be all that great of a basketball team. But the bench is nuts. I mean, when the guy playing the 10th most minutes for you in this past game is Corey Kispert, that's telling. And they're playing with 
effort, and they have multiple guys who are solid. And maybe I slightly undersold this supporting cast. They were able to win without Beal. That actually isn't all that shocking to me because it was kind of just Dinwiddie stepped up as the primary guy and had some really clutch moments and shot really well from deep. Six of nine, had 34 and nine on the day. I'm more concerned about how he compliments Beal, but you just go down the rotation, dude. Kuzma, Gafford, Aaron Holiday, KCP, Bertans, Kispert, Denny of Dia, Trez, Raul Neto had a really, really good game against the Pacers. We haven't even seen Hachimura. Like, there are very few teams that go that deep. And we knew that coming into the season, but maybe it's going to have more of an impact than we anticipated because here they are, they're 2-0, and and I think that really the reason for that is their depth, the contrib- the contributions that they have gotten from their bench because Beal didn't play exceptionally in their first game. They didn't even have him in their second game. And then I would also just point to the effort. I mean, they are playing hard. I still don't think it's a great shooting team. They were 50% against the Pacers, if I'm not mistaken, from deep, but that's not on high volume because they just don't have, again, that kind of volume shooting on this roster. But they're going to play hard. They're going to be deep. They're going to play fast. They're going to find ways to be competitive in a lot of different games. And uh, I don't know. They, I guess, deserve some credit for what they've done. I'm not super jazzed about the Wizards, but I am really impressed by their depth. Because, again, when you're going 10 deep like that and you don't even have the Hotch, who's your best player or Bradley Beal, who's your second best player, that's impressive. I'm just surprised this dude is talking about the Wizards. Yeah, I mean, I don't fundamentally disagree with the take. I completely Mm -hmm. agree. Like, the Wizards were extremely impressive against Indiana. I mean, they got 52 points from the bench, again, Mm -hmm. without Beal, without Hachimura, without Thomas Bryant. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I agree with the take. Yeah, the the depth is phenomenal. It's just... It's the Wizards, you know, it's the Wizards. Bro, they're going to go 13 deep, though, when they're fully healthy. Like, in a couple months when Thomas Bryant is healthy, that is going to be insane. Yeah, there's value in that. I mean, Dinwiddie has looked really good. Mm-hmm. I I wonder, as, the, as we see, you know, like Dinwiddie and Beal together, yeah, they look good in their first game. I wonder if that's going to work. But, I mean, they put 34, 6, and 9. You have to be impressed. Um Maybe I undersold them. Maybe I gave the Magic a few too many wins and I should have allocated them over to D.C. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, I agree with the take. The bench is deep. The team is deep. Maybe they'll win a few more games than I expected. Do you think they're in... Is this team in play in contention? No, not even close. I mean, the 10th team out East is going to be really good. Like, it's probably going to be either... The Pacers, the Hornets, or the Celtics. That's kind of insane. So, no, I don't think that they're in that conversation. You have bumped the Celtics to that tier? Dude, I had the Celtics as my eight seed. I had them only winning a couple more games than the Pacers. And if you're asking me who has looked the worst out of them, the Pacers, and the Hornets, it's certainly been the Celtics right now. I still think that they will be better. (sighs) Yeah, I don't think that they're going to be the 10 seed. But do I think that they are more in that 8 to 10 tier? than they are in the 5-7 to seven tier, I think it's dangerously close, and I think that the answer may be yes. So, the, yeah, there you go. A little Wizards mini-take. One last mini-take. Super quick. The Pelicans suck without Zion Williamson. They are terrible, and, you know, he's not going to play anytime soon. He's going to be reevaluated in a few weeks. Brian Windhorst said that the Pelicans are concerned, obviously, about his health with the foot, but about his conditioning, too. He's probably not going to be in peak form right away, given that he didn't have an offseason. And... It, The defense is poor. 
The offense is directionless. The depth is a major issue. At least Nikhil Alexander-Walker is a bucket. But other than that, the Pelicans, dude, I had them as the 12 seed. I feel pretty good about that. Like, that's where they're going to finish this year. They're not as good as the Kings. They're not as good as the Timberwolves. Without Zion, they're probably, like, only better than the Thunder out west. Yeah, I'm in... Same here. I mean, there's there's a few bright spots. Uh, Nikhil has been pulling from deep. Yeah, he's a that bucket. Dude is, that dude has got range. Uh, they're starting Herb Jones. I love it. I love Herb 3 and D. Uh, I love Trey Murphy. Um, I think they've got fun young assets, but they are going to stink. Um, Zion has got to lay off the gumbo and the jambalaya, you know? Like, mm-hmm. dude, Zion Williamson is the heaviest player in the NBA. Mm-hmm. Like, Dude, it's just, it's so ironic. All of these memes when he entered the league. Zion Williamson could genuinely eat himself out of the league. And that's horrible. Because we were sitting there clamoring after last year about what this kid could be. Mm -hmm. And the kid is literally going to be too fat to play NBA basketball. Honestly, if you're New Orleans, get him out of there. Get him out of there. Trade him for whatever you can. Please, do it now. Yeah, well, you know what? He's not going to be a New Orleans Pelican for all that long because this is a poorly run franchise that has not done a good job right now. And, you know, it's tough because he's not healthy. And I do like some of their assets, but I just don't see the future where this team is ever a legitimate contender building around Zion Williamson. But I still think he is insane. And as long as he can stay healthy, is going to be insane. And yeah, it's tough because his game is so predicated on his athleticism. At the same time, the dude was as big as a house last year, and he's still flying around and overpowering people. But the concern is how that relates to his health, because that's just such an insane burden on like his knees. And that's an insane thing to still ask somebody to do when they're 27, as opposed to you know just beginning their third year in the league. Yeah. Um, man, I just spaced. I had a really good point I was going to make. Uh, that sounds sick. It did sound sick. I had like a thought formulated in my head. You know how that goes sometimes? Dude, that was a great point. I was like going to say it on the mic. Damn, dude, what was I going to say? Zion, Big Chungus, Pelicans, <laughs> not so good. Um. All right, we're going to wrap empty. it up. <laughs> my head has gone empty. Dude, I had a point about Zion I was going to make, and I just lost it. I apologize, Nerd Sesh fans. I've wasted... 10 seconds of your time. Damn, let's wrap it up. (laughs) All right. Well, there you have it. End of a two-hour pod, Logan. I can't really blame you. Fatigue is bound to set in. But boy, oh boy, was this fun, man. It is so amazing to have NBA basketball back. Hope you guys have all enjoyed this alongside us. Hopefully, you know where to find Nerd Sesh. If you don't, then you can find us again on our website, nerdsesh.com. All of our YouTube videos, all of our podcasts, all of our writing goes there by the two of us on this year podcast and then also Carvel Teft who is writing and making video content for us stay tuned in with the YouTube channel we post video essays here video breakdowns as I think Logan and I kind of hinted at expect a couple of those over the next few days always expect a couple of podcasts a week live streamed to the YouTube channel touching on the NBA and the NFL we will be back in person by this Monday And then also you can listen to the podcast in audio form on Apple, Spotify, wherever you choose to. You can follow us on social media. Twitter's at nerd underscore sesh. Instagram is at nerd sesh. And with that, as always, I've been Carson Brabber. I have been Logan Camden. And this was Nerd Sesh.
With your Amex card, entertainment benefits like special ticket access and pre-sales to select can't-miss events while supplies last, make every tap music to your ears. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA.